welcome to this episode of Surviving Justice, Realities of Reporting Rape. Um, today I'm going to be talking a little bit about address confidentiality programs, um, what they are, why they're useful, some pros and cons about those. But I'm also really excited that today is mostly going to be spent talking about the series on HBO, I May Destroy You, that was created by Michaela Cole. It is absolutely fantastic. It apparently received zero nominations from the Golden Globes, which is completely crazy considering how brown, brown breaking, that's not the word, groundbreaking and amazing this series was. So in order to do that, I am going to have my dear friend Vasha, who you may remember from season one, who wrote an amazing work of protest art about um, her rape case. She's going to be on here discussing the series. She was actually the one who introduced me to it, and she had shared with me some really interesting insights about it, and um, I just thought it would be a good time for us to get together and talk about it. And so I do want to let you know that, again, it's called I May Destroy You, and um, we will be having a lot of spoilers because we're talking about basically the entire series. Um, we don't we we realize that it's not even possible to cover within the amount of time that we had for it. But um, if it is something that you've been planning to watch and you haven't seen yet, um, definitely don't listen to this episode today. Maybe save it for later. Or if you do decide to listen, maybe give it a month until you watch it so that you forget all the things that we talked about. Um, but. Yeah, there will be some spoilers, so just be aware of that. And of course, um, given the content of the show, it is about a woman who is the victim of a drug-facilitated sexual assault, and her whole process going through that, and there's other characters who experience their own um, their own sexual assaults throughout. So um, there's a lot of discussion about that, and we kind of get into everything today, talking about their healing process, their friendships, their support, um, the way it relates to um, me and Vasha's own lives, and the things that we liked about it, and just the fact that it was such a realistic portrayal for once, finally, of rape survivors who are just trying to go on with their lives, and the ways that the everything that happened to them is just hanging over them as they go on. So that's going to be the bulk of this episode, but I just wanted to give fair warning, and um, if it is something that you're thinking about watching, but you haven't because you're worried you'll be triggered, I did find it triggering, um, but one thing is that like, ultimately, I found it to be really helpful, really insightful, and very validating because it was such a realistic portrayal of things. So yes, triggering, <laughs> um, but ultimately, I thought it was extremely worthwhile to watch, and um, if you're in a place where you feel that you can watch it, I highly recommend it to you. But before we get into that, I want to get into a segment today called Available Services That Are Still Inadequate. Available Services That Are Still Inadequate. Um, I had some fun with Autotune yesterday and came up with a bunch of little segment names and put them to Autotune. So I'm sorry, but that's just how this podcast is going to go from now on. Hopefully you're into T-Pain. We're just going to take it from there. So first on my list of available but inadequate services for survivors, and this can be survivors of domestic violence, survivors of human trafficking, survivors of sexual assault, is the Address Confidentiality Program. And this is something that is in, I believe, every single state. And even though it's available in all these different states, it is run by each individual state differently. So some of the rules may be different and definitely apply in a different way, depending on where you live, etc. I had just gotten some questions about this and what it is and why it's useful, and um, there's also some things that you really need to know about it, and unfortunately, I think a lot of people find out about this when it's too late. So that's one of the big reasons that I wanted to talk about this today. So if you have been victimized and you're afraid of your perpetrator or anybody that they're affiliated with finding out where you live, then you can apply to be in a state's address confidentiality program. And what it does is basically it gives you a fake address that you can put on every single utility. Um, if you have kids in school, you can say that that's where they live. Um, it gives you this fake address to use for absolutely everything. You receive your mail to your house, but it gets first directed to whoever's running that program. So in some places, it's the Secretary of State. Um, in some places, it's usually just like basically a statewide government office that's in charge of running this program. So it's not, your mail isn't even delivered to this false address, um, but it is usually an actual physical building that exists somewhere, but your mail is sent first to the building, right? Whatever building it is. And then the people who work there um, are people who are working for the state. They sort out your mail, they figure it out, and they forward it to where you actually live. Um, and this is done super like on the DL 
So the whole point is to keep your address completely confidential so that nobody knows where you live and you're able to use this resource in a way that keeps you safe from having your information being out there. Because as you know, you can basically Google yourself if you own any land, if you have a utility, your name and your information is probably all over the internet and there's so many different places where it gets put up and three months later, even if it's taken down, it's probably just going to be put back up again. So this is a program that's used to be able to work around that and to keep you safe. And this is a really good program in theory, but there are some things that people have issues with. Um, Some of them are really big things and some of them are more like inconvenient kind of things. First of all, for the kind of less important and more inconvenient kind of things, some of those things include that usually there's one central address for the entire state. So even if you live in a really big state, it might say like, I don't know, let's use Texas as an example. And I don't know if this is true for Texas at all. Like this is just like a made up thing. But let's say you live in Texas and you actually live in Houston. So you're like way in the South and you go to register your kid for school or whatever. And you show up and you're trying to prove that you live in this particular zone um, so that you can get into the right school. And then your address is based out of Austin, which is more in the middle of the state. They're going to be like, um, this isn't correct and you can't come to school here. And the issue with it is that a lot of people don't know that these types of programs exist. So even if you spend some time trying to explain it to this person, um, there's a big likelihood that there's going to be a lot of issues with somebody actually understanding that you are allowed to use this as your address and still use it as if it was a local address. Um, so that's kind of one of the big issues between like having one locally and um, just the fact that a lot of places use the same the same address for their whole entire state. On another end, you also can't really receive packages or I think even things like magazines. So there are certain things that you just no longer can receive. And some people get around that by using Amazon lockers or using like a PO box or using using certain things um, to be able to get packages in different ways, but that is a big limitation. And again, I'm not sure if that's true in every state, but I know it is for at least. I think truly that the biggest inconvenience that's really, it really can be awful Um, is the fact that you typically have to have some kind of like police report or some kind of restraining order, some kind of legal document that shows that somebody is a danger to you if they know where you live. And this is so incredibly frustrating. So this is just, this program should be allowed to someone whether they report or not, because we know that again, the vast majority of rape survivors do not report. So they probably wouldn't have a way to actually like have like a legal document that proves that this happened to them. And on top of that, especially if you're um, a survivor of domestic abuse, it's oftentimes in a lot of states, very incredibly difficult just to get a simple restraining order, which is another document that you can use to show that someone's a danger to you. In my opinion, and this might be the case in some places already, you should not have to have a legal document to be able to establish whether or not your life is in danger. It adds an extra step. First of all, to be able to get into the program. Um, It forces you to report in one way or another to be able to get into the program. And I think a really easy workaround for that is to work with um, domestic violence advocates or sexual violence advocates in the state that you're in to be able to prove like, yes, this is like a documented list of things that this person has done and like blah, blah, the advocate can advocate on your behalf to be able to be part of this program. And then another really, really, really big issue with this is the fact that since so few people know that this is even an option. Um, A lot of people will move and then after they move, after they've put their name on everything and they have utilities in their name and they have a house in their name, after they've already made that escape is when they try to register for this program. And this is like really problematic because once you have your name on like a DMV list, that becomes in most places a public record. And once you have a public record, your information can be found by anybody who wants to find it essentially. So the most ideal time that you can apply to be a part of this program is right before you move. Um, Because especially if you're going to a totally new state before you get a driver's license, before you register your car, before you put your name on a lease, before you get your utility set up, before you do any of that stuff, if you're able to get into this program, it's so useful because you can just automatically start putting that like false address on absolutely everything. And then um, it reduces the chances that somebody will figure out where you live. Like, for example, I knew somebody who had inquired about this program about like two days after they moved, but because they had already um, been to the DMV and gotten a license in a different state, they were no longer eligible to be a part of the program. So 
that is just an incredible limitation. And it's also really frustrating that like, even once you put your phone number on a card for a grocery store, that is then typically sold and becomes like part of this public information that's compiled about you that anybody can find. So it's just like really, really frustrating the way that our information is so widely available when I just, I don't even understand the, like, this is off topic a little, but I don't see the value in anybody just like knowing where you live for fun. Um, and I don't think that should be so easily accessible. I think that's like really problematic in the U S in general, but, um, because it is so problematic, we have these programs that exist that are able to protect you a little bit more. So I hope that's helpful in talking about that. I know this is super short. Um, it's because I really want to get into this other discussion about this really fascinating series that I think is like really illuminating for survivors of sexual violence, but I did want to talk about that. And if you have any questions about that, it's something that I can get a little bit more into, but I do think that it's a program that has, it's, it is a really great program and it's something that's really beneficial. I just think it has its flaws and I think that there are ways around them. And I think, um, if they could change things just a little bit, and if we could change things in general, um, about the way our information is shared so freely, then I think that we could create a safer world for all survivors. So, um, if, if you do find yourself in a situation where you're going to be moving soon, inquire before you go. Even if it's still within the same state, you can do things within the same state um, as long as it's before you move and before your name is on other documents. So um, that's just something that I thought was really useful information to know. It's helpful. It's not a fully complete service that is like 100%. People can still physically track you. We know that. But um, it is something that is a step in the right direction. Like I remember when I actually used to be a victim advocate that was trained to be able to get people into this program. So it was really interesting because as part of our training, I remember one time they were telling a story about the building that they give. It is an actual physical building in the state where I was getting this training. Um, and they would say that like the police were called many times because there would be like a stranger that would show up to this abandoned warehouse, essentially like pounding on the door, thinking it was an apartment complex looking for the person who, um, you know, presumably as part of this address confidentiality program. So it's pretty crazy, um, that people do that and it goes to show you that there really is value to it. And that's all I have for available services that are still inadequate. So next, like I mentioned, I really wanted to get into the series. I may destroy you, um, created by Michaela Cole. And I'm going to be talking about this with, again, my dear friend Vasha. So we're just going to jump right into it. Starting off by talking about how ridiculous it is that this was not nominated for anything within the Golden Globes. <laughs> That's so crazy to me that this was not nominated for anything because it's so good. But the crown got two separate nominations. Of Best performance by an actress. Two separate nominations in the same one category. Are you shitting me? Are you serious? Yeah. In the same category? In the same freaking category. Best performance by an actress in a television series. Olivia Coleman, The Crown. Emma Corrin, The Crown. Oh, that's so frustrating. Ozark. Ozark is still going? Like, what? Um, okay, <laughs> Jodie Coma, uh, I don't know how to say her name, Killing Eve, and Sarah Paulson Ratchet. I'm just like, um, okay, so that's, let's just go as a white girl and a white girl and then another white girl, another white girl and then another All white, white girl. girls. That's so, that's so like, frustrating. <laughs> Crown couldn't just take one freaking nomination and give Michaela Cole one, one. I know she deserved it. She was so, she's so good. Like what I love about her acting is she's like so real in the sense that she's like so, so relatable. So like, so funny without like, she's not trying to be, it's just like her personality. It's just how she is. <laughs> it's like one of my favorite things about, about her. She just has this, like, this like humor and this like darkness that I think both of us feel <laughs> a lot of the time, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. I think her range of uh, being, uh, portraying herself pre-rape and then portraying herself during and post-rape and being able to go back and forth and to still have a sense of humor, but also to show us this real vulnerability. You know, there's this one scene where she's in her bed 
And I be- I think it's after she has a fight with B- um, Biagio mm-hmm. and he like, you know, tells her, well, it's your fault if you, if you just wash your drink, this wouldn't have happened. Uh-huh. And she like bursts into these tears and she pulls a shirt up and then she pulls it down and she just, and it's just sort of like done. And I just mm-hmm. felt like that's real. You like have these, like, it's almost like a burp of emotion and it comes out. Yep. And then you, as opposed to like, over dramatizing it and oh she's on the floor crying for like hours in the bathroom on the (laughs) ground like it was such a real portrayal of this vulnerability and this crying and like especially when you know she's in the police station the first time and she's reporting it and she's she's also she's trying to be light you know and you see that and then you know the, the detective is saying well what does he look like? And she's like, oh, he, his nostrils look really big. And she's like, yeah, it's perspective. So he must be looking down and somebody's looking up at him. Who is he looking at? And then she has that moment of like, oh, it's me. And then Mm -hmm. she starts crying. And like, I get choked up just thinking about it, talking about it, because Mm -hmm. it's that such a real moment of, I'm really hoping that this isn't going to be sexual assault. I'm really hoping you're going to tell me it's called a bad dream, babe. Uh, Like, watch your diet. But no, it's really sexual assault. And it happens over and over. And even Kwame, Mm -hmm. for best supporting actor, like, really? Mm -hmm. And... You know, yeah. So anyway, Golden Globes don't have much respect for you anymore. Yeah, definitely not. Because I feel like that's so true. Like just the way, the way that the, the way that she goes through those emotions are so real. And that's what I love about the series so much is the fact that she's not, she's not over-dramatized and like the way that she responds to things. She's not like your typical, your, I feel like in almost every single other show movie whatever that features any kind of like fictionalized rape victim they're always like they're always just like that person that's like crying on the floor and living in darkness and just like it only shows this one-dimensional aspect of their trauma and like nothing tattoo or she becomes a psycho killer yes yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) she can never just be a normal person that goes through like a range of emotions (laughs) that are totally normal because it's so true it's like when she's talking to the police she's like very light and I remember like in my own initial interview that's recorded like I don't have any emotion in my voice at all I'm just kind of like yep so this happened this happened this happened and like meanwhile the whole weekend before that interview I had been like back and forth going like in tears like just feeling numb to things feeling really like separated from the situation and then like coming like there was just so much to go through and she she does all that in there like it was so realistic she's like so I just love that about it because it really, it like, you're right. It makes me choked up too. Just like, she's so like, it's just such a realistic response. And then when you get those people who you think are going to be there for you, like Biagio, like her boyfriend, who you think that is like going to at least respond. Like you could tell she was nervous. That's the other thing too. You could tell she's nervous to talk to him. Cause she's like, I don't want to tell him what happened. Like, I don't know. And then he responds in this horrible way. And she just has this wave of emotion. That's just like, it's just like almost like disappointment and also just like devastation and all of these things that just like come crashing down around you in those moments. But it's not like, it's not like it's that moment in time that just like lays you out on the floor for like a week. Like those things come later, but like in that moment, it's like, you just, yeah, she just has that like one, like hiccup of emotion, like kind of feels it, lets it pass, has to like come back to herself and like, come back into like what she's working on in that moment in time and keep living her life because again everybody's life keeps going and they have to keep operating within their own realm and in their own life and that was one thing that I really like that they portrayed in it too is that like she has a job she has work to do she has all these things she has to do and nothing slows down for her and she just has to like incorporate this horrible piece of her life and deal with it every day and it's I love that they like also just made it like this constant looming thing that she's always thinking about but isn't always the priority in her day because it can't be like it it can't yeah it's so realistic yeah yeah absolutely uh I don't know if this is like jumping wait, but just just to go back for one second yeah 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 I just <laughs> we're jumping a little bit I didn't know you good. Were the golden globes and that has me like riled up as fuck <laughs> Tell me that Emily in fucking Paris, Emily in Paris got nominated for a best comedy. Like, uh, I, I didn't, I didn't watch it. Vote for this? Who's on this panel? 
it's, I can guess. <laughs> like, can I guess? <laughs> I'm going to assume what their skin tone might be. <laughs> and, and Lily Collins, like, it didn't just get Emily in Paris. Didn't That's just so get Beth Comedy. But then she, Lily Collins, also gets for Best Performance by an Actress. Really, Lily? Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, no, she really pushed it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Oh, that's awful. Anyway, just awful. really, just yeah. Let's, I just really want to stick it. Um. By the way, Small Acts, which we started with, also was nominated, and so I'm super pissed off. Okay, like, <sighs> like, fuck you, Golden Globes. Anyway, um, stupid. I'm I'm over them uh, already. <laughs> they missed all the good ones. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but from what you were, about what you were just saying, um, mm-hmm. one of the things that didn't. Like, I didn't remember that was such a strong um, factor or that just really stood out to me even more this time around watching it was how much in having to cope with rape, she's actually forced to cope with a lot of other things in her life Mm. and her other shortcomings. And I thought that was so brilliantly, so brilliantly depicted by her going to the therapist and her saying, well, Arabella, and then there's a line, and then, you know, it's X, and everything that's X is underneath the bed, right? It's everything she's shoving that does not align with who she sees herself as and who she wants to be. Mm-hmm. And then in her book, you know, it becomes the A and the X, because she's become like this whole person again. And in order to become that whole person again, she doesn't just have to really face, and I love the, that, that the finale episode is called Ego Death. Because it really is your ego that has you constantly playing out every single scenario that could go down. And what I loved so much about that finale, and I remember watching it with my husband. And at first he was like, I don't, he didn't like fully comprehend. And I'm there just like crying, like, it's so me. Except I didn't write a fucking book after. Um, but like there's still time (laughs) there's still time Um, but just the the fact that like she shows how first you want to kill the guy right and then you vacillate between this like well I really hope that we could just kill him to (laughs) I wish that we had just had consensual sex like I would have banned you like that could have happened if you had just asked maybe nicely if I was sober like that was a way that this could have played out. And then, you know, she's laying there in bed with him in her full of fantasy. And he's like, I'm not going to leave until you tell me to go. And I think that after she's like, okay, I have to integrate all of these experiences, not just him, but also the abortion, you know, also what had happened in her childhood with her dad. And then, and it's through the full integration that she's able to say, okay, I can kind of push this away and let it go, but I'm still going to make a very poignant piece about it. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I think that's a really, that's such a good point. And I literally, I didn't even consider that. Like I kind of saw the scenarios in the end in a different, in a different way, in in a sense, like in a similar way, but like, I didn't really think about that, about like the whole, she really is forced to confront everything. And I think that as, a rape survivor, you completely go through that too, because you're being scrutinized to an absurd level by like all these people that are making decisions about your life and what's going to happen to this person who caused you harm and is probably going to cause other people harm. And like, but it falls on you. And so it like forces you to think about like everything you've ever done in your life. And you're like, oh my God, am I a good person? Am I a bad person? Am I a credible person? Who's like, who, how are people going to see me? How are people going to interpret things about me? And like, when you look back and you're like, oh, I could have been better in X, Y, Z situations or like you're going through trauma and you make mistakes. I feel like you're so much harder on yourself and Mm -hmm. like you question your own reality and like who you are as a person so much more than any other point in your life to the point where it's almost like self-destructive. And I just like, I think you're so right. I like how like at the end, it just does become this like, like ego death moment in the ego death bar, which I didn't even like put that together. (laughs) It's like, that's what happened. Um, but yeah, it's true. It's like, in the end, she just, she has to find a way to make peace with like everything she's done in her life that she's like, still like 
that she still has mixed feelings about or doesn't have those like clear feelings about her things that might bring her shame or guilt or whatever. And that's such a good point about that because I feel, I feel that way all the time. Like, I feel like, I feel like I have been scrutinized (laughs) by like people who are actively seeking to destroy me, like very clearly. And like, I have been so hard on myself and haven't quite gotten to that point of like acceptance and like release, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Oh, you're going to get the <laughs> But like I think yeah, I think like um I I might watch it even a third time because you know, every time you watch something, you pick up on something sort of different, you latch on to it and that and that marinates and grows. And I think what she's saying in the end is self-love. It's e- what rape forces in the healing from rape, it forces you to realize is either you have to love all of yourself or you are not going to love any part of yourself. Like it comes down to, you can't have this separation of, well, I love these three out of five things about myself. You know, mm-hmm. it, it just doesn't work. You know, it, yeah, it creates these like demons. And so she really is forced to figure out how to love herself despite all of the various things. You know, when she has that fight with Kwame and she's like, if I find out that you are faking being a victim, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to question your entire character. Mm-hmm. But really what she's saying, she's saying that to herself. She's like, are you, she's asking herself, am I really a victim? And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the great things that this show portrays is like, this is when you're a victim. And then this is how you kind of come out and step out of that. But you can't just be this victim forever. And you can't just go on this like rampage and hunt for bad people all the time, you know? Yeah, that's a really good point. And it makes me think about like some of the questions that we were considering as like which which characters that were supportive in their roles to her after she goes through this experience, like which ones were supportive in ways that like we experienced in our own lives or like wish we had experienced in our own lives. And like, for me, I'm like Terry, her best friend, Terry is like, (laughs) she's like the picture of like the perfect supportive friend in so many ways until you get to that one spot at the end where you find out that she was like kind of lying to her to try to protect her. But ultimately those things, like they don't, they don't serve to protect or help a victim who's trying to understand their experience as it happened. And I think that was difficult, but like for the, but I love too that Arabella is just so like forgiving of her and they have such a strong friendship that she's like, cause I was thinking about, it was like, for me, if that was one of my friends who did that to me, it would need a conversation. Like I would want to be like, why'd you do that? But I think like, it just spoke to their connection and their bond and like all the other supportive things that she did that Arabella is willing to just be like, we don't even need to have this conversation. I know why you did it. I know you were trying to be helpful. And like, I forgive you for that one thing that you did because you've helped me in like all of these other ways. And because like, they care about each other so much as people because she does all the, all these things with her. She brings her to like, she's like thinking like, I don't know, bringing her to like these different art events, which is like fun. It's like fun to watch all the different ways that she tries to heal, <laughs> like tries to find healing and peace in some way. And I just really appreciated her as like the supportive friend element. And like even Kwame too, just the way that he showed up and didn't, um, didn't question her. Like neither of them questioned her. They were both just like very concerned and very caring for, from like everything they did. And like, I can't think I had friends who were supportive, but like where I lived, I was very isolated from the people who I was closest to. So like, I didn't experience that in that way. And I just thought that was like a really beautiful portrayal of how to be a supportive friend and help someone's healing. Yeah. So Terry reminded me of, of my, of one of my friends, um, my, one of my main friends, my best friend. Um, so she was a PhD student at UCLA and she actually came with me to the UCLA rape treatment center. And but she didn't believe that what had happened to me was actually rape, even while she was sitting with me in the rape treatment center. And it was only after when she told her now husband, her then boyfriend, what had happened, he had to explain to her, no, 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 that is rape. But it actually took a whole year later when UCLA, I believe it's in 2016, 
they finally implemented a system where in order for anybody to sign up for classes, they had to take this course on sexual assault. And it's through her taking that course that she understood that the nervous system goes into fight, flight, or freeze, and that common reactions and responses are to start negotiating and not just to turn into a ninja and grab something and kill the fucking guy. Exactly. Which is what you think is going to happen in your mind. Exactly. And people love to play the game of like, oh, if this happened to me, I would blah, blah, blah. It's like, Uh, well, when that happens to you, you come back and tell me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You report back to me how that goes for you when you're in that situation. We don't wish that on you. We don't really want that to happen. Of course not. But Um, but so it took her so it took her that long to figure that out. And she said it was the biggest regret, one of the biggest regrets of her life, because what happened is I go to the UCLA Rape Treatment Center and what policeman do they bring? A big, massive man with like the deepest voice. And I literally just sat there shaking. I could not say nothing could come out of my mouth. I had literally just been put in a gown. And ha- and I'm and I was raped. On- so yeah, we'll talk about that. But like, I was raped on my period, which is a whole other scene that happens with Arabella, and that like mm-hmm. that's why that episode means a lot to me. Um, with Biagio, who of course in the end this turned out to be a dick. But anyway, mm-hmm. so I was raped on my period. So when I went to the rape treatment center, I'm still on my period. So I'm literally bleeding all over a table while they're like probing me with all of these things. And right after that, they're like, "Would you like to talk to this?" very large male policeman and I'm like I nothing is coming and I was screaming crying the whole time that I was on that table so I don't know how anybody expected me to make a fucking police report at that moment that should and never she, even uh, happen that's so crazy that should not have ever happened at UCLA please <laughs> so 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 she says if she had really believed me that I had really been raped she would have made the report for me she would have intervened, but she didn't intervene because she actually didn't believe me. Oh my God. And also she, they can't take her word for it. She's not the victim in it, you know, like they would want to talk to you. Right. But she said that she would have, she would have taken action. You know what I mean? She Mm -hmm. would have helped some way just more than that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so then I had this other friend who was actually there the night of that, that I was raped. Like we'd all gone out drinking. And so then after, of course, I tell her what happened. And she's like, are you sure you want to report this? Because I spent a night in jail for drunk driving. And let me tell you, jail is not a good place. And I'm like, is, are these words coming out of her motherfucking mouth? Wow. And I was like, is this a test to see if I'm really telling the truth? I felt like everybody was testing me all the time. Yeah. So then she takes me to the police station. And unlike Terry, my friend left. And wow. she left me at the police station. She's like, I'm sorry, I have to go. I'm super busy. It's L.A. Oh my god, that's like the most LA thing I've ever heard. And so when I'm at the police station now making the report by my little self, they're like, okay, well, you now need to go and do another rape kit. And I was like, but I already did a rape kit at UCLA. Why do I have to do another one? And they're like, this is just how it is, and you have to go and do another one. And it's like, but uh, but I'm confused. Like practically a week has gone by. And uh, I was like, I can't do that again. Like, I can't go through all of that again. And again, if I had had a, possibly a friend with me, like (laughs) maybe I would have been, I would have had that like strength and encouragement to go through this whole thing. But, um, but yeah, so that was, that was really, that was really hard. But I mean, that same friend did. So yeah, so, so kind of like Terry, she was like super supportive. She would also answer, all, always answer my calls, always listen, but they, but still was not like 100% perfect, you know, just like yeah. Terry was not 100% perfect. What annoyed me about the whole Terry thing, though, was that, and of course, again, this is the ego doing that whole, like, let's replay this whole situation. So let's just get this straight. Terry, you don't <laughs> think maybe you should go and tell the police officer that that was a lie and her friend did not take her home. And perhaps you should check the CCTV for <laughs> like, who did she stumble out with? Nobody, anybody, somebody. Um, so, so Yeah. <laughs> That's why I love that it's called ego death because my mind is definitely going, yeah, okay, but why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do this? But why didn't they do this? But I don't understand. How come they don't have this? Yeah. The cash point didn't have a camera. Like I'm confused. What bathroom was it? Okay. Yeah. No, that's such a good point. And I think that's such a good point about 
the issue with Terry too, because it's true. I feel like, um, I mean, like none of us learn how to support people ever in, in the United States. <laughs> like we don't do that. Um, if it's just like something we either learn through family whatever. It's not like we, we're not taught like empathy in any practical, meaningful way, especially for situations like this. So like when somebody is going through something, I think it's like, it makes sense. Like I've definitely had friends who have done the best they could with what they can do, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't, it's like sometimes not helpful and sometimes like actively harmful and it's not intended that way. So it's like, it's interesting because I feel like when you go through something like this, it can really change your friendships. Um, and like, I know for me, some of, some of the people that I thought were friends, I was like, that is not a friend um, in any capacity. Like the best they can do is literally like the least that anyone could do. <laughs> and just absolutely not. So there have been people who have just been like, nope, bye. And that's been fine. Cause I just, I feel like you have to like have so many like so many strong boundaries and really practice active self-care and who you spend time with and who you're, who you share your story with and like who you give details to and different things like that. And then there's other friends who like, they haven't always said the perfect thing. And like, they maybe didn't understand it at first, but later on they like read a book or watch something and they're like, Oh, I get it now. And I'm so sorry that like, I wasn't more supportive or whatever. And like different things like that. And then also sort of things like, yeah, like when you have people who really have been there and just done the best they could. But like, I even have like, like, I don't know, like sometimes I feel like people feel guilty for the way that they first responded because they're in some state of shock when you tell them what happened. And they're like, I feel like, are you sure? Is like the first question that every single person asks you. Like, I don't know, especially like, I don't know if it's especially from being drugged because there is this extra layer of confusion where you you don't remember things. So it's just like, you question yourself, first of all, for like this, the small period of time it takes to just get out of denial. But then like the people who you tell are also like, are you sure about that? And you're just like, well, yeah, <laughs> like that's why I'm telling you about it. And it's just not a helpful first response. It's not a helpful first response, but it's like, if like later on those people can come back around and like be supportive, I think it's just interesting. It makes you look at friendships in a really different way. And it made me realize like outside of like what happened to me, even that certain friendships that I have, have always been like really not, not healthy and not balanced and like not okay. And like, those are things that like, I've like, even like really like long friendships are just like, they got severed because of like, not just because of the situation, but like kind of indirectly because it just, it makes so many other things in your life clear as much as it makes them like kind of cloudy for a while. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, definitely. The mm-hmm. saddest response I got was, and this was like somebody that I was just becoming really close with. And she comes physically comes over to my place. And I, this is like the same day. And I tell her and she goes, well, when I was 12, my uncle touched me, but I kind of liked it. So like, I don't really, I just like, I can't. And then she left. Oh my gosh. And I was like, that, that's, yeah, love. You know, like I would, I couldn't be mad at her. I just could only be very concerned and compassionate and be like, Mm-hmm. wow people are really poorly educated mm-hmm. and yeah. just don't know how to really deal and respond to things but that was definitely I, that was the most shocking response that I got yeah I, I feel like almost I think it was like two two of my really good friends who I didn't know they had been through not the same thing but kind of like a similar thing or like an attempted kind of situation like I had never known about that when I disclosed to them and it like, you just have to understand who, who, and it's funny because you don't know until you talk to them. So like, if I had, if I could go back, I would like approach it differently and be like, this thing happened to me. Are you someone who's okay with hearing about it kind of thing? Um, like I almost feel like I should have been like more sensitive in how I reached out to people, but I just did not expect so many of my like close friends to be like, so many years ago, a certain thing happened to me too, but I didn't do anything about it and I haven't really dealt with it. And like, I felt like some of the people who hadn't dealt with their own situation or their own trauma, like they could not hold space for me. Um, 
which was fine. And like, I understood it, but it was never like, it was never explicitly said. It was more the kind of thing where like, if I brought anything up, they would be like, we're not talking about that today. We're going to have a good day. This is stuff that we're not dealing with today. Like that kind of like just shut down situation. Um, And I feel like those, those kind of things were, they're like, they're difficult to navigate because I feel like in like, it's just, it's, it's really genuinely shocking when you have these people that you're close with and like even as much of you as you have shared with each other and as much of you as you've told each other about like all these other really critical, important, life-changing things in your lives, like this one specific thing, like they have not talked to people about until you bring it up. And so that was really surprising to me. And it was really tricky to kind of navigate how to how to either find support or just accept that, like, you know, it's okay that they can't be there for you because of their own their own trauma and their own experiences that maybe they haven't come to terms with yet. That's kind of like what your friend, what her responses makes me think about too. Yeah. So I had another friend who her response was that, yes, something like that had happened to her in university. And she said, but you know, I went on to continue to sleep with him. And it reminded me of Arabella's relationship with um uh, with with the writer who's supposed to be helping Zane. Yes. Uh And how, you know, the first time it happens, he just takes off the condom and she's like, well, that's really shitty. But it's right now I'm just looking at it from the layer and the perspective of I'm not on the pill. Mm -hmm. And then she's listening to the podcast. And then after the podcast, she straight up just asked the detective, hey, is that is that sexual assault? And they're like, yes, when you don't know what it is. But I, I love that she had gone back to him because there is this sense of like, you don't want that to be the truth. You want to sort of rewrite the story. And you mm-hmm. think by continuing to write the story, somehow it's going to be different, right? Like it's not mm-hmm. going to be that. And so my friend, when I was doing my Courageous V series, she's like, you know, you're going to get a lot of backlash because a lot of people are going to not want to acknowledge that what happened to you was rape because then they would have to face the fact that what happened to them was rape and Mm -hmm. they don't want you to do that. That's such a good point. And I don't think it's like talked about enough because we don't talk about rape enough as a society anyway. Like we don't acknowledge it as a problem because it is so common and it's too hard for people to cope with, you know? So we just shove it down like it doesn't exist. And like, oh man, that's crazy. You said you said something there too that just made me think of something and now it's it's slipping my mind. What were we talking about? Okay, why do you think about that though? I was going to say, what's really annoying to me is how people are like, oh, we're so over the Me Too movement. Like, we get it. We're over it. And it's like, no, you don't get it. You can't be over it because literally nothing has changed. Right. Nothing has changed. Right. Literally nothing. Maybe if you're Taylor Swift, you could sue a guy for a dollar. Exactly. Otherwise, friend, nothing. You are no safer than you were two days ago or five years ago. Like, do you understand? You are in jeopardy, but I know you don't want to think about it. So it's cool. I, yeah, yeah, I know exactly. I think that that's, that's something that's so interesting is like the fact that like, even like, I don't think about it in the sense of like, well, I guess, okay. So like what happens now is like when like another wave of like, like is happening right now when another wave of like celebrity figures are outed as being sexual abusers or sexual assaulters or whatever it is that they are or sexual harassers, whatever, whatever their role is in the sexual violence movement, right? Like whatever their role is, whenever I see that come out again, I'm just like in my head, I'm always just like, ah, like when will it end? (laughs) Like when will it end? But I don't mean it in the sense of like, I'm tired of hearing about it. I mean it in the sense of I'm tired of these people doing this shit and like, there still being no consequences. Yeah. Like, yeah no accountability, no consequences. Women are mostly primarily women, men too, though, like are still suffering all the time. And it's just like, it's just so frustrating. And I don't know. I feel like for both of us, yeah, both of us had this happen to us before me too was even a thing. Like mine was like a month before it became a thing, which was like, honestly, really weird timing. And very comforting for me like a month later when everyone is like no this is a huge problem that nobody talks about I was like oh okay 
I'm in good company here, but yeah, no, it is frustrating. Like it's, it's, it's not going to be over and people, if people are tired of hearing about it, then they need to be doing more to end it from starting and happening in the first place. Yeah. I think that's why Kwame's storyline, I think was such an important one because it shows how he initially gave consent. And then this guy who just wanted to do this specific thing then holds him down and does it, but there's no, it's there's no real physical evidence. There's just the emotional scarring. And mm-hmm. how how do you prove that? And it showed the big difference between, and I love that it showed the difference between somebody, these two women who were super trained and how to deal with this. And then this man who's obviously not trained and says the most you know, inconsiderate thing, um, which is, you know, you could have just left another report outside and like you wouldn't have to actually be in here. Mm-hmm. And it's you're talking about thing. the detectives and the police response. Yeah. 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 To Kwame. Mm-hmm. He goes to make the report, right? Yep. And, uh, and they just, just shame up. him like right up off the bat. Yeah. Right. Like, and yeah. And it's not like he's being super mean, but you don't have to be aggressive and mean to still be shameful towards somebody or mm-hmm. to diminish something. He was and just I uncomfortable. Just, His discomfort was like the thing that made it feel like you could feel the awkward tension just from like, yeah. and it's like, dude, that is, that is your job. If you're that uncomfortable, like please find a new profession. Like kindly. Yeah. He should have said, you know what? I'm not qualified for this right now. I'm going to get you somebody who is end of story. But Mm -hmm. I do think that that is, that was such a tricky situation because how, how do you prove that, that he did this? You know, like Mm -hmm. what are people supposed to do after that? Right. Right. And the other thing, and I don't know, this is just something that I started to think about. I think yesterday when I was thinking about this, but like, I don't know how it works over there, like in the UK, but in the US, like to get a rape kit, one thing that really stood out to me was that when they were talking to Arabella, she had like these two kind of like compassionate female detectives and they're like kind of explaining the process to her and they're like, we'll determine for you if you need to get a forensic exam. And I was like, good Lord, like if that were the process in the US, like if the detectives were the ones who chose whether or not you got to have an exam and you couldn't make that choice for yourself, Oh my God. Like that was just so frightening to me because I'm like, they would totally like, and and I don't know if it's just like the kind of thing where like, they will give it to anybody who reports, but they want to make sure that it's not something that happened six years ago first. Like they want to make sure that like, it's actually something that will be beneficial and not just like an extra layer of trauma for the person going through it. Like, I don't know how it works over there. So I may have misinterpreted that scene like entirely, but like I was just thinking about that over here and I'm just like, thank God that the, the police are not the gatekeepers for getting forensic exams. And like, if there is a situation where that happens, which I could also see that, like if you reported before you got a rape kit and they're like, well, don't even bother because your case is going nowhere. Like that kind of thing. Like, I don't know. It just, it gave me a lot to think about in terms of the way that the police interacted with them because like, I feel like they were horrific to Kwame. And then I thought that the forensic exam thing was kind of just like a little bit confusing to me and like interesting and made me have this like, like <laughs> feel this horrific alternate reality in the United States where like, oh my God, if the police were in charge of this, that would be like terrifying. Um, But yeah. And then the way I also thought it was interesting though, that like, ultimately, even though you were like, you were saying like they they kind of, the only thing that they, anybody seems to follow up on at all ever is like the, the DNA evidence that they can get. Right. And when it's not helpful, but there are all these other things that they could be doing, like checking video footage, like checking receipts, like checking, I mean, a primarily video footage, I feel like is the most helpful thing. Like I had to literally beg my detective to look for video footage. And he was like, unless it shows you falling over, it's not going to be helpful. So what's the point? Then he like, I was like, can you please just do it? Cause I know they have it. He goes and he gets it. And I'm literally falling over, <laughs> he's literally falling over. And he's just like, oh, would you look at that? Like now I'm going to take you seriously. And it was just so frustrating. And like, when he showed it to me, I was just like, holy shit. Like, because like, I wanted to see it because I was like, I don't know if it's going to jog a memory, which like I, my memory is erased. It's gone. Like there's no way it's going to be jogged, but like, that was my thought process back then. And like, yeah, I don't know. So it's just frustrating to me because I feel like they also, it just shows very much in I May Destroy You how the the detectives, as kind as they can be, they still do the absolute least like they do. They really, really do. And it's 
it's so incredibly frustrating because there's never like a real reason for that. I just, yeah. I mean, I just, because they read her this long letter about all the things that they did do. And Mm -hmm. first of all, for me, my detective literally did nothing and made me do everything Mm -hmm. and then try to get me to do things that he should know that I would not have been able to achieve. Like asking Verizon for a printout of all the text messages. They're like, no, you need to have a warrant for that. And the police needs to request it. And I'm telling him, and he's like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, wow, really? Anyway, he made me go back to the bar and get the and get the bill, get the receipts of all the drinks that I had had to show how intoxicated that I was. And uh, yeah, I had to go and do all those things. And I and it just made me think. But they knew what time they were there and they knew what shots they had and how many. Why didn't they go back and check all the receipts and then ask all of the people that bought shots that night? But yeah, mm-hmm. should I be? Is that what we're saying? Should we become detectives? I, just, <laughs> I feel like it's just like it's such common sense, but I feel like I've I've spent three and a half years now <laughs> considering this every single day. I just feel like they literally, it's like this, this processing their brain they don't want to deal with these cases they know that prosecutors don't want to deal with the cases so they're like if I do a good job in this and do any work and put any amount of time into it it's not even going to matter anyway so why bother doing it and then it's like then they get to the prosecutor and the prosecutor's like well did you do anything like is there any evidence and they're like no of course not because they never did it because they knew it was going to be a waste of time it's like this like cycle of just like no one wants to deal with it. And then like, they don't gather the evidence. So there's nothing to present. And then the case is declined. And then like, even if they do do, do a good job, which like now I'm starting to question, like if they actually know what a good job really is, like, I don't think they really do, but like, even if they did do like the best job ever, the prosecutor is still going to find a reason to not pursue it. Unless it's like this very specific type of case, which I always feel like are like the statutory cases where like it's age and it's clearly defined and like, it's so frustrating. Yeah. So what I came to understand was that the reason that they really stay away from these cases is because if they lose it, it, it really hinders their ability to move up the chain. Yep. And that alone it's all is ego. a freaking problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, that is a major problem. If you are going to reject cases and not even try because it's hurting your career to try. I'm sorry. That's not, that's not how my taxes work. I don't feel like that's how my taxes should be working at all. Completely um, agreed. Completely agreed. Yeah. But I don't... you also know from your own research, and I mean, I feel like I know for sure from listening to your podcast, how poorly trained these people are, how archaic their training is. Mm-hmm. Um. And and so that no, they don't know how to do a good job. Like like they really don't. They I mean, genuinely don't. They genuinely don't. And they, uh, yeah. And and it's just not even something that they really want to pursue at all. I mean, I had a confession. This guy was basically, you know, all of the text messages was just so telling of like what had happened. Mm-hmm. So yeah. But I think the other issue is also the jury system. I don't understand why a group of completely untrained people who've never had any experience in the arena are trying to determine if this thing is true or not. Right. Like, can you imagine science work that way? The vaccine for coronavirus. We're like, you know what, let's just get a jury of people completely untrained in science and then let them determine if they think this is a good vaccine. That's such a good idea. I always equate it to like the medical profession, like when it comes to like prosecutors and police and their like arrest rates and their um, prosecution rates. It's like if if a if a surgeon succeeded one percent of the time, would that be okay with with anybody? Like I don't think it would be. <laughs> but this yeah. is true about the jury too, and it's so frustrating that that is even a little bit the system. And that's the other thing. It's like it's the prosecutor's job to educate them on what they need to know. And prosecutors, like they do not know how to be effective in doing that, and they're afraid that they're going to fail, and they just don't. And like I question how many of them even have the right training to be able to do it. So, yeah, very frustrating. Definitely. That's interesting. I know that kind of veered off a little. I'm trying to like, but that was I'm interesting because I've like I've never thought about I haven't really thought that deeply about the jury system other than the fact that like what? 
it's frustrating. From the minute Audrey Simpson was let go, I was like, this is flawed, y'all. This is flawed. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like 10 years old and I'm like, something is wrong here, y'all. <laughs> That's such a that's such a good point. And it's so frustrating. And I've been like um recently too, like there's a woman who I'm hoping to have on my podcast soon who is trying to like very clearly define consent laws. And she talks in her book that I'm reading about how like Bill Cosby was con- convicted. No. I don't know. I can't remember what happened to him in Pennsylvania. I can't remember the outcome, but I know that there was one person on the jury who um, they were told basically like you figure out you guys, the judge had to be like, you guys use your common sense and figure out what consent means because we don't have a legal definition for it. So even though he drugged these women and they're unconscious and very clearly incapable of consent, they couldn't figure out what consent meant. So there was like one lady on the jury who worked as like a cyber, I don't know, some kind of cyber tech something. And she had some, like very clear definition of consent in her field. So she was the one who was like, this is very clearly not consent. Like if we go by this definition and like the other people in the jury were like, well, I don't know, like maybe, maybe it is, maybe it is. I don't know what consent is. So like, that's literally like why that, that failed because they, that's like, that's, I mean, I know. And what's really irritating, what's super irritating to me is how many people constantly victim blame. First, they blame the victim for getting raped to begin with. And then they blame the victim for not being able to get justice. And they really don't look at all the other players that are involved in this entire process. Because mm-hmm. it's easy. It's easier to believe that the system works. It's easier to believe that the rapist isn't a rapist. It's easier yeah. to believe that the victim is the one person who's a, you can just lay all your blame on and that person is crazy or making it up or out for vengeance or whatever. It's just so much easier to blame someone than to accept their pain and like to understand that all of these other things are oppressive and harmful. And I would, like, I used to say the system is broken. It's not broken. It's like working very clearly as intended, which is not to protect women and not to protect communities unless they're very particular communities. Yeah, no, I mean, I would go more specific (laughs) and I would say the system is very clearly intended to protect rapists. Yeah. Just like, you know, just like the people that enslaved others and the system is there to protect those types of people because men don't get justice either. This is not a black and white issue or a man-woman issue. This is a rapist versus victim issue. Mm -hmm. Oh, completely. And I I feel like a big part that goes into that is because like, we have this, I think it's definitely like a wealthy person versus a, a, like a not as well off person or just like a regular person or even a wealthy defendant in general. Like, I think that you're right in the sense that the system is built in such a way that the defendant has a billion more rights than a victim does. Like the victim is basically trash and is treated as such throughout the whole entire process. And the defendant is like, oh, God forbid we violate his rights. And like in in the state that I was in, like we have a victim's bill of rights and almost every single thing in the first part of the statute was violated. And like, did anybody care? No, like it means literally nothing. But if one single defendant's right is violated, like the whole case is thrown out and it's just like, tell me how that's fair. Someone explain that to me because I don't quite get it. And I just feel like when you have the resources to pay for a really aggressive defense attorney or like a really aggressive private investigator and like all these people who definitely have some kind of like, I, I'm just like, I know it sounds like conspiracy theory ish, but I just, it's the way it works. Like, especially in smaller towns, like, and I'm sure in bigger cities, like if you hire the right person, they know the right people. They have like these connections, they have ways to get around ever being prosecuted for anything because they just like, they, they have those inroads that just like your run of the mill average person off the street who has this thing happen to them. They don't have those connections because they're not like planning to be a victim of a crime at any point in time. Unlike people who live their lives, serial offending and like, are just like, Oh, I got to have these ducks in a row for when it happens, you know? Yeah. Wait, so I wanted to say two things. One is I think people who victim blame ultimately are doing it because it makes them feel safer to think that it's never going to happen to them because they are not, as you just said, trash and oh, yeah. they would never do those things. So it's not, it hasn't happened to me and it's not going to because I'm different to you in this way. 
And in terms of the how those things go down, you know, I did pay a lawyer. I emptied my bank account paying a lawyer to put together a whole case thinking, yes, I'm not poor. I'm not going to be one of these people that can't that can't get justice. And I'm going to pave away, you know, so stupidly thinking that. And I paid all of this money, had a hundred page document of evidence and 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 they still rejected my case because they really didn't think that they would win. But I remember, I don't remember what documentary it is. I was watching this, but the guy was a defense attorney and he's saying straight up, yes, because they have more money, because they are getting paid not by the state, but they are getting paid by the defendant. They now have the ability to tell a more compelling story. And if somebody just has to listen to a bunch of words come out of your mouth, they then start daydreaming about what they want to eat that night and what their favorite show is. And then they start thinking about porn, literally. Whereas when the defense comes out and they have charts and they have all of these various extra tools and Mm. graphics to help in their storytelling, Mm -hmm. that is how they ultimately win. So the story and the artistry of storytelling is what gets defendants off and and the defense attorneys to win. That is super, that's super interesting. That is super interesting. I 100% agree with you about like the victim blaming and how it's so much easier to blame that person than to accept like the reality of the situation. But I've never. Yeah. 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 Rather than looking at the big picture. Because it makes you feel so small and so helpless. It's like all these. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I love that Arabella went through this process of as as strong as she is, as much as she has social media and uh, these various outlets she keeps going back. She keeps saying, I'm confused. Are you saying that I could just be dragged into a bush at any moment and be raped? I could just be dragged into a bush at any moment and be raped. And I think that I never thought about that or felt so vulnerable until after I was raped. I was like, holy shit, this is how this thing goes down. And now I feel so much more vulnerable to it than I ever did before it happened to me. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. And it's so interesting. It took me, it took me like a while to get to that point. Like at first I was so furious. I was just like, so upset and like, so focused on this, like one event. And like, now that so much time has passed, I'm just like, it's crazy. I'm like, it's crazy to me that like, I almost feel in a sense, I'm like, wow, I can't believe that didn't already happen to me before I was 28, you know, like in that kind of thinking. And like, it is a little bit terrifying to like, continue to like, just think about how prevalent it is and how common it is and how there's really no meaningful consequence. So there's no deterrent and there's no, like, there's no sense of prevention, really. Like there's no, there's no system of prevention that exists right now in the U S it's just the whole, it's very, yeah, it's very terrifying, I think, and very frustrating and makes you feel vulnerable to a level that, yeah, like you said, I've never felt before. And like, yeah, it's not, not a good feeling, (laughs) not a good feeling at all. Yeah. But that's what I loved about the episode where they go back three months, where she first meets Biagio, where they go to Italy together, she and Terry. And uh, even though of course in the end, Biagio turns out to be a dick Mm -hmm. in, in that day, that day when they, you know, when they kind of first go to hook up, she's on her period. Mm-hmm. and her consent goes back and forth she's like oh do you want to hook up and then she's like oh no I can't because I'm on my period and he's like yeah but you still want to give it a shot and she's like okay <laughs> and then they start giving it a shot and he's like oh my god what is this and she's like yeah I'm a really heavy bleeder and then she's like mm, I'm out again and she takes back the consent and he doesn't unlike me at that point does not hold her down and take her yeah um so and that was so that was a really <laughs> That was a personal special moment for me. Like, hey, I wish my night had turned out that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, but I thought it was really important to show, yes, a girl can give consent and then take it back and then give it to you again and then take it back. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't, you know, you have to stop. Right. Because so. it's, an, it's an ongoing process between two people. It, it, like there were clearly things and dynamics that were happening that like there were solid reasons and things that he was saying and doing that made her uncomfortable. And like, those are things yeah. that, yeah, need to be respected. This is an interesting story. Um, so somebody tells me that she's having, oh, my friend is telling you, her friend um, is having sex with this guy and they don't know each other like that well, right? Like a hookup. Mm-hmm. And so they're having sex they're in the middle of sex. And then she says, stop, I need to go pee. 
And he's like, no, no, you're going to come. Like you're, you're going to, you know, you're going to come. It's okay. And then she's like, no, I need to pee. And he's like, no, no, no. And then he just keeps going. And then like he finishes and, uh, and then he leaves and afterwards, you know, they have this conversation and he's like, okay, I kind of feel like I raped you because you were saying to stop and I didn't. And so then, you know, kind of, so just kind of rapey, yeah, kind, of, kind of a little rape, rape adjacent. <laughs> yeah, rape and, adjacent. Uh, and so then what she does though, is to say, okay, well, let's just try again. Let's just do this again. And, and then it was like really awkward. And then they never saw each other again. Surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it is like these, these lines of consent and when you can take it back and, and that men, I just think ultimately what we're saying is men have to do this thing called have self-control, listen and respect. And I feel like they really don't want that. As we were having this conversation, we really realized that there's so much to talk about and so many conversations that can come off of I May Destroy You. Um, again, if you haven't seen it, please watch it. It's amazing. But we were thinking of maybe even doing a whole separate thing on that. So that is pretty much it for today. Um, If you have a story that you would like to share and you'd like to be on the podcast or have an episode featuring you um, or even just part of one, you can reach out to me at survivingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring this podcast, it would be super helpful. I'm trying to do certain things like get um, transcriptions done at some point in the future so that those that are hard of hearing or unable to hear will be able to have accessibility to this podcast, different things like that. Um, and if you're interested in that, then you can go to patreon.com slash surviving justice podcast and even donate $1 per month. And it would be tremendously helpful and go a huge, huge, huge long way. I'm so grateful for your support. So again, I hope to hear from you and um, next week there's a really special guest. It's exciting and um, I hope that you'll enjoy it and I hope you all have a really good week.